You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Uh, thanks very much. We're just so delighted. I guess one of the, the very few silver linings of the pandemic is that we are able to bring in and hear from people that uh, we normally wouldn't be able to because sadly our budget doesn't allow us to fly people in from Sweden or, or, or places like that. And so we have to uh, usually stick with people who are already in the United States. Um, so we're very fortunate to have with us today Rustam Olimbayev, um, who today is coming to us from Istanbul, where I guess he must be doing his research, um, which means that he is doing this at midnight, which is also uh, very, very nice of him. Uh, and uh, I'm a huge fan of his work. Um, his work lies at the intersection of law and ethnography. Uh, he studies um, migration, corruption, governance, uh, and penal institutions in Russia and Central Asia. Um, if any of you have had the good fortune to read his 2021 book, which I have right here, you know, uh, Migration and Hybrid Political Regimes, it's just a, a masterwork in terms of the uh, methodology, in terms of what he's able to, was able to do uh, in uh, his research. And I certainly, I take my hat off to him. And somewhat amazingly, he's got a, a book coming out in 2022. Uh, uh, so he's the, I guess, uh, uh, the hardest working man in uh, uh, the uh, in the Slavic world, right? Um, and the title of that book is uh, political, The Political Economy of Non-Western Migration Regimes, Migration and Legal Informality in Russia and Turkey, uh, to be published by Palgrave uh, International Political Economy Series. Um, so uh, without further ado, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the title of his talk today, which is Ethnic and Religious Identities in Russian Penal Institutions, a Case Study of Uzbek Transnational Prisoners. Uh, and thank you again for staying up late with us. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you, Catherine, for uh, inviting me to three Krika's uh, lecture series, and it's a great honor, pleasure to present my research. Uh, thanks for a nice introduction. Um, so let me share my PowerPoint before, and uh, this is my uh, new research project, uh, uh, which is uh, in some way continuation of my previous project about uh, Uzbek migrant workers in Russia. And in my previous research, I looked uh, into the legal adaptation strategies of Uzbek labor markets in Moscow's shadow economy. Uh, and uh, this new project is a kind of follow-up because in my previous research, uh, when I interviewed Uzbek migrants uh, in uh, shadow economy of uh, Moscow, very, uh, the, they often referred to the uh, street world uh, criminals, uh, Uzbeks sitting in Russian prisoners and have they fixed problems of migrants who cannot get their salary in uh, Moscow's shadow economy. And then this was uh, something that I wanted to explore more. And, uh, and luckily, uh, I got an invitation to join the Gulag Echoes project uh, led by Professor Judith Pallot, and she got money from European Research Council for, for her project about uh, uh, multicultural prisons uh, in 
post-Soviet countries. And then uh, in this project, my specific role is to look at the role of ethnic and religious identities in, in Russian prisons. And I use uh, in this uh, project the case study of uh, Uzbek, uh, Uzbek uh, prisoners who served prison sentence in Russia. Uh, so this is a brief history of how I started this project. Uh, and. Uh, I will uh, now tell more about uh, you know uh, the, you know the research problem puzzle that uh, that uh, uh, incited me actually to explore this. First, uh, uh, when we try to understand the Russian penal research, penal sociology, uh, there is a one one of there are two dominant you know. Uh, uh, ideas, you know, when trying to understand Russian penal space in relation to, especially to ethnicity and religion issues. And one of the key arguments in uh, that you find when you're reviewing different Russian language uh, scholarships on uh, Russian penal space and ethnicity and religion, that uh, they argue that Russian penal space in Russia continues to remain ethnically and religiously neutral uh, sites, despite the ever-growing anti-migrant sentiments, uh, sentiments and widespread inter-ethnic tensions in the wider Russian society. Uh, the lack of ethnic conflicts in Russian prisons can be explained by the persistence and legacy of Soviet cosmopolitanism and long-term effects of the Gulag system that subjected all prisoners to the norms of the criminal culture, regardless of their ethnic or religious belonging. And Soviet uh, criminal subculture, we know this Varavskoy Mir, uh, I think this is one of the fascinating topics in, in the study of Russian prisons. Uh, the, the idea is that it combines idea of French of friendship of peoples with ideologically non-ethnic prison hierarchy system, limited the, uh, and this, uh, this Soviet criminal subculture, limits the overt uh, expression of ethnic solidarity and established the criminal cosmopolitanism model, which became a standard that operates operating procedure for all inmates. Another Soviet legacy that makes penal institutions in Russia sites of cosmopolitanism is the closeness and remoteness of the prisons from uh, major cities, which reduces public control and uh, stops the flow of xenophobic sentiments coming from the outside world. And then legacy and persistence of Soviet, Soviet criminal, criminal subculture, this Varavskoy Zakon, Varavskoy Paniati, make Russian penal institutions significantly different from those in the United States where ethnic conflicts frequently occur. These are one of the uh, dominant understandings. And the second, second understanding, when we try to uh, understand religion, especially religion, there is a growing discourse among Russian penal scholars and criminologists that uh, Russian uh, penal states are turning into sites of religious radicalization, conversion, and terrorist recruitment. This is another picture that, that, is, uh, that you find. Uh, when trying to understand. And then, then, then the, uh, the talk about prison jihad has become one of the dominant discourses in the contemporary Russian language scholarship concerning religion and ethnic relations in Russian penal space. Much of the local Russian scholars scholarship is repetitive and rely on information from central and me, uh, regional media sources when developing their arguments. So it's very often there is a lack of empirical data and 
when you survey uh, different Russian language scholarship, they are frequently referring to the media new, uh, media sources when talking about uh, radicalization and prison jihad. And also uh, in another source of, of, of this uh, 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 mainstream understanding is that uh, Russian penal research is also influenced by the Western penal sociological research, which excessively focuses on prison radicalization and prison jihad when discussing prisoners' religiosity. So these are this uh, global tendencies and media uh, shaping the uh, understanding of religion in Russian penal space. And then as a result of the lack of uh, empirical data, Many Russian penal scholars assume that Muslims, uh, especially Uzbeks, uh, Tajiks, uh, Caucasian migrants, religious uh, rituals and group-based praying practices are manifestations of radicalization and religious extremism. Uh, I will talk more about this when, uh, when I present uh, empirical data from my fieldwork. So discourses surrounding the idea of prison jihad even though not based on solid, solid empirical research, provide some clues to the changing nature of ethnic and religious relations in Russian penal institutions. And uh, so far, according to my uh, literature review, there has been little investigation of ethnic, uh, racial, and uh, religious relations in Russian prisons over the last two decades. In my study, I empirically investigate uh, the, this process and try to contribute with, um, with a, uh, with a uh, case study of Uzbek transnational prisoners. The, uh, the argument that penal space in Russia continued to exhibit the features of the Soviet model of cosmopolitan universalism needs to be reconsidered due to ongoing transformations in Russia and globally. This, this is a large-scale labor migration, for example, that transformed Russian penal institutions into legally plural environment. And then in my through my interviews with 29 Uzbek ex-prisoners who served sentences in different Russian uh, prisons uh, stretching from Moscow to uh, to Siberian prisons, I identified at least four types of uh, informal hierarchy subcultures. The first one is a colony regime that is uh, uh, official regulations and everyday management practices at the institutional level. These are the official regulations uh, of uh, which which, uh, which guides the everyday uh, management practices in, in prison. Second one is the traditional prison subcultures. As we know, this Varavskoy Zakon, Sivs Law. And third subculture that I identified through interviews, it's a Muslim subcultures based on Sharia law. And also I also identified through my interviews also subcultures based on ethnic solidarity norms. I will uh, talk more about this in, during empirical data. So uh, about my key argument. In my study, uh, based on my interview data, I challenged the widely held view among Russian criminologists and some Western historians that penal institutions in Russia have traditionally been ethnically and religiously blind. First argument that I make is that growing number of foreign prisoners with different ethnic backgrounds, religious beliefs, and cultural values may erode the legacy of the Soviet cosmopolitanism. This course of Druzhba Narodov is no longer valid in, in contemporary times in, in Russian prisons. Even during the Soviet times, as we know from the research conducted by Jeff Sahadeo, this course of Soviet Druzhba Narodov had little appeal in everyday life. We know the example of Limitschik in St. Petersburg, which uh, 
shows that uh, racism and uh, xenophobic attitudes were much present in the lives of um, Uzbeks and Tajiks who worked in construction sites in, in Leningrad. And second argument that I make, the widespread use of smartphones and social media by prisoners in Russian colonies may reduce the importance of distance, be distance between inside and outside walls, thereby enabling prisoners and their networks, families, friends in Moscow to stay in touch even when separated physically. So this means uh, I will I will discuss later how the uh, smartphones and social media uh, is used in Russian prisons and then about the corruption in uh, prison administration which enable uh, prisoners to, to gain access to smartphones. But this, uh, due to these two factors, uh, Russian penal spaces are no longer uh, 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 sites of cosmopolitanism or no longer, you know, prisoners are no longer confined. But there is a very much digital mobility inside Russian prisons where even staying inside Russian prison, it's uh, prisoners can take part in uh, larger social processes outside the prison. So uh, that's one of the processes also global globalization that is also shaping. Third argument is that uh, Islam and ethnic solidarity networks compete with the established formal and informal orders and hierarchies in Russian penal space. So uh, if we try to uh, some background uh, to my uh, uh, arguments, as we know today, Russia is one of the key migration hubs worldwide, uh, and it's one of the top five destinations. And the vast majority of migrant workers come to Russia from three Central Asian republics, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. And this is due to the visa-free regime and also uh, which uh, also the, uh, uh, cultural connections between two countries and also the chain migration that uh, provides uh, uh, regular flow, flow of migrants to Russia. And many migrants, as we know, work in construction, transportation, retail, and janitorial services. And these are the sectors where informal employment is widespread. And uh, Russia's ambiguous laws, uh, which uh, makes uh, it's nearly impossible for migrant workers to stay legal, even if migrants get uh, work permit uh, and residence registration. But after some time, uh, migrants uh, end up being undocumented because, uh, first of all, it's expensive to 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 pay for a work permit fee on a monthly basis, and second. Uh, migrants have to renew the, their uh, registrata residence registration very frequently, and this uh, due to the meager salaries they have, it's not always possible to do that. And also another factor is that Russian uh, state officials, uh, police officers, immigration of um, immigration service and uh, judiciary court system, they apply the laws in relation to migrants very uh, very arbitrarily, which which means that uh, uh, being legal or illegal does not uh, met, uh, doesn't depend on having a, uh, authentic legal, uh, immigration documents. It's more matter of context and uh, matter of discretionary power. So as a result, many migrants not being able to stay legal, they usually resort to shadow economy where they can work without any documents and language skills, and they usually become part of this uh, part of the world where uh, the work, criminality, and precarity is uh, is 
is, emb is embedded in their daily life. So as a result of this, uh, migrants navigate and then they, uh, they become part of uh, different schemes, illegal schemes. And very often migrants uh, are victims of fabricated criminal charges initiated by Russian police officers. And we know this uh, system of quota, you know, a plan where police officers have to catch certain number of migrants uh, every month and send them, uh, transfer their case to court. Or often police officers have the uh, plan quota to uh, to to, uh, to to reveal criminal cases, and then usually migrants are victims of this kind of fabricated charge. But uh, very often also migrants uh, commit crimes, and uh, many uh, some of at least half of the uh, migrants I interviewed they uh, they admitted they they indeed committed crime. So this uh, this is how Uzbek migrants end up in. Uh, in Russian uh, Russian prisons, and if we try to understand statistically, these are the official statistics. Not official, but because uh, Russian uh, uh, federal prison service they don't regularly provide statistics about the number of foreigners uh, in Russian penal institutions. For example, if we if you if check the latest uh, statistics uh, which uh, Russia provided to Council of Europe. Uh, we don't find any numbers about the number of foreigners. And Russia, the FCN is a Russian federal prison service, is, uh, is, is not providing, hiding this information. There is a blackout of information. So, but uh, roughly speaking, this media, these are the day statistics provided by Russian media sources. And uh, between 25, 30,000 uh, foreigners serve sentences in, in Russia. Uh, uh, so this, uh, these are the five year uh, average. Uh, and, but uh, so if we, uh, if we check this media sources, uh, so, uh, at least uh, uh, the Tajiks are the largest number of uh, foreign prisoners in Russia and Uzbeks are number two. Uh, then we have uh, from Azerbaijan, uh, also from Ukraine. But uh, as you see, uh, Central Asians are the largest in, uh, num in, in Russian prisons. Um, but during my uh, research, uh, I tried to create somehow my own statistics when I interviewed 29 uh, Uzbek ex-prisoners. I asked them if uh, how many Uzbeks were served their sentences uh, uh, in their in their uh, correctional colony in in prison in prison uh, where they served sentence, and then they roughly provided statistics. And uh, for example, in colony. X, uh, for example, uh, one of my informants if, if said that at least 20% of uh, prisoners uh, were, uh, were um, uh, foreigners, non-Russian non citizens. And in another colony, uh, Y, uh, it was my informant said that uh, nearly half of uh, uh, prisoners were uh, non-Russians. And, and then in, in another colony, it was at, uh, 25%. So depending on the correctional colony, uh, uh, I would say that uh, based on my interview data, between 20 to 30% of uh, prisoners are foreigners in, in, in Russia. But uh, this is this are the you know statistics generated through 29 interviews, and I I, I don't know to what extent this data is uh, rep uh, representative. 
It's just my own uh, statistics. These are um, uh, Muslims, uh, Uzbeks, Tajiks, uh, Chechens, and Dagestanis uh, celebrating uh, uh, Eid, uh, this uh, Muslim holiday uh, after Ramadan. And then uh, I have some, uh, let's see. So about my fieldwork, uh, I conducted two periods of fieldwork last year uh, in Uzbekistan. I, uh, I interviewed uh, 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 in total 29, 29 ex-prisoners. The reason I conducted interviews in Uzbekistan is that it's not possible to interview uh, 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 Uzbeks in Moscow, in Russia, for example, because after the uh, completion of their prison sentence, uh, all uh, uh, all prisoners, uh, non-Russian uh, non citizens are deported to their home countries and to Uzbeks also deported. So that's why I, I visited different villages in Fergana Woloi and then through my existing contacts, I was able to identify 29 um, uh, Uzbeks. Uh, and then two of my informants are female and majority 29 are uh, male interviews. Uh, so this is uh, uh, briefly my fieldwork data, but uh, before going to the next slide, uh, and before talking about uh, Muslims' uh, uh, daily, uh, daily lives inside Russian prisons, I would like to show some, some videos which, uh, which will give you more insights. Uh, this is the village where, I, where most of uh, uh, my informants live in Fergana Volley. And this used to be an industrial uh, village during Soviet times, but after the Soviet collapse, uh, uh, Moskovska Bispechenia, Moscow provision were no longer, uh, was no longer available and many people lost jobs here. And this is, a, this is one of the villages where we have oil, oil, and, uh, oil and gas. But now it's, uh, it's there is not much uh, reserve, and many people lost jobs, and they 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 uh, they left to Russia as a migrant worker, uh, and that's why I think you, the many informants uh, were from this village. And during my uh, fieldwork, I was interested in the role of religion, ethnicity, and uh, about uh, whether Muslims were concentrated together or separated. And I was interested in uh, different illicit power hierarchies and uh, about uh, Muslim groups. And then I was also trying to understand about uh, different whether Muslims experienced any discrimination by prison officers. Uh, I also uh, try to understand Muslims' position in traditional hierarchies uh, and uh, how they identify themselves, themselves and types of social organizations Muslims, uh, foreigners uh, involved. Uh, so these are different questions. And then as you see in this, uh, because uh, they, all of my interviews, they have Paganiala nicknames. Uh, and as you see in their identification, the, Ethnicity is quite visible. For example, Borya Uzbek, Uzbek, Sanyok Uzbek. Sanyok is Russian uh, uh, from Uzbekistan, but he's he's called there Uzbek. And Ryazansky Uzbek, uh, 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 Dimon Firganitz, Ivan Uzbek, Misha Firgansky. And so even though ethnicity is not uh, so much present, but uh, 
and it's uh, it's not allowed to openly express ethnic identity, but uh, in uh, in everyday practices, in a covert form, ethnicity was very much present. Um, uh, and uh, now I think I will uh, now move to empirical uh, data and. Um, and as a result, uh, as I said, uh, smartphones and social media are frequently used by prisoners, especially in uh, uh, in colonies called black colonies or regime new zones. These are the colonies which are controlled by uh, by criminal higher uh, criminal authorities, civs, uh, uh, and the prison administration had little uh, impact on uh, on prisons' daily routines and practices. And in these kind of colonies, uh, smartphones and social media are frequently uh, are often available, and prisons have access to different uh, different types of smartphones, even iPhone. And then they can make phone calls, and they they are they have their social media accounts in Facebook, in Adnaklasniki, uh, and as a result, they even though they are uh, physically confined in Russian prison, they are part of uh, daily social proce processes outside prison. And then mobile phones usually cost, uh, the, for example, if cheapest basic Nokia mobile phone is uh, is 10,000 rubles outside prison, it, it's usually more expensive there, around 20,000 rubles. And cheapest smartphone is usually, you can buy from store in Moscow for 13,000 rubles, but uh, inside prison, they, they, they are at least 30,000 rubles. And iPhones, uh, 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 around 150,000 Russian rubles. It's uh, it's more expensive inside. And prisoners, Uzbeks, I interviewed. They usually had two SIM cards. One SIM card was used for making phone calls to friends and family in Uzbekistan. So the, then they had a special tariff, uh, which, uh, which and then they had also another SIM card, and then this SIM card was connected to their mobile banking. So and for example. Uh, Anyone outside can, could deposit money to their uh, to their mobile wallet, and then they could use it to buy things inside uh, inside prison. So so, and then they usually kept their you know SIM cards in uh, in in places like Kurkashnik, uh, you know, secret hall where they inside inside the wall where they they can keep SIM cards. Uh, so, and also there was a. a connection between uh, Uzbeks serving sentence in different prisons through, through mobile phones. If, for example, one Uzbek lost in a card, uh, because if you lose in, in card and if you cannot you pay your uh, card debt, it's shame and you become fuflishnik. It's, uh, it's one of the lowest prison hierarchies and then you will, you will not be considered decent man according to uh, prison hierarchies. So then Uzbeks, in order to preserve, preserve their, their reputation, they usually collect money and send money to, to another prison. So this is how the ethnic solidarity works. Uh, and, uh, and another way to, to generate money is Uzbeks, they usually uh, try to help migrants uh, uh, outside uh, prison uh, in the Russian labor market if they cannot get salary, particularly in construction and bazaars. Uh, prison, uh, Uzbek sitting in prison, they usually try to solve this problem through criminal authorities and then uh, there is a, a dispute settlement outside uh, and then it's regulated uh, by through prison and usually uh, Uzbek migrants get their salary and then as a, as a, as a gratitude they have to 
uh, deposit 20% of the recovered salary to, to the mobile wallet of Uzbeks. And then this money, of course, goes to the prison Abshak, which is mutual assistance fund. So there is a very much, you know, uh, connection between outside and inside is, 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 is one of the intriguing uh, data uh, details coming from, from my field work. Uh, okay, so if I talk about more about uh, how the religion works there, uh, many non-Muslim, uh, non-practicing Muslims, they usually become more religious when they, during their imprison, imprisonment period. This is because uh, uh, usually Muslim groups are led by Chechens and Dagestanis and Tajiks are often uh, serve, serve as imam uh, because um, uh, prisoners have usually, in some prisons, uh, there is a special mosque. For example, one of the empty, available empty barracks can be used as a mosque. Or in some, uh, in some prisons, if there is no mosque, uh, Muslims are usually occupying one of the corners of this, uh, this barrack and then praying together. So the, it depends on from one colony, from one prison to another. And for example, in even in some colonies, prisoners, Muslims became so strong that they, they declared Islamic caliphate and they elected their emir. And this happened in a correctional colony in Kazan a few years ago. And also then there is a daily praying. Muslims are praying together and, and especially there are more Muslims come to praying during a Friday prayers. And then they have this, this halal practices and they don't eat in a, in a prison's canteen. Instead, uh, they usually receive parcels, food parcels from outside and they can cook inside the barrack uh, together so that they have halal meat, halal food. Also, there is also a strong system of social control. If one Muslim is eating pork, then other Muslims are reporting him to uh, Imam, and there is usually the you know, punishment. And uh, this Muslim, if uh, repeats this behavior several times, can be excluded from Muslim uh, Muslim networks. Uh, so these are different, you know, examples. And for example, uh, I have uh, some. Uh, uh, some examples uh, from, from my interviews, you know, every Sunday prisoners, uh, especially in black zonas, they are uh, gathering and they are drinking chifir, this, uh, this tea. And then while after drinking chifir, they are saying uh, a long, uh, long life to, to, uh, to worry, you know, sips. And this every prisoner after drinking chifir, they have to say this uh, and uh, Remember, uh, remember sieves because because thanks to them they are having good conditions in uh, in prison. But Muslims usually refuse to attend such ceremonies, referring to the fact that um, only uh, only Allah God uh, can, can decide who lives longer uh, or not. And then they are not attending this kind of ceremonies and saying that this is uh, this is against Sharia law. Uh, and also Muslims, they have their own special abshak, you know, it's, it's separate from the main abshak. And then uh, they are collecting money. And when one, one of the Muslims ends, uh, have some troubles, they are uh, usually supporting their members. 
so this uh, this are there are many examples uh, from in my data uh, and i will try to use them in my different publications and also muslims uh, also try to uh, ensure that no Muslim ends up in Reds Barak. Reds Barak means, you know, uh, collaboration with, uh, with prison officials, uh, then it's a shame. And Muslims also try to make sure that their member do not collaborate with uh, Russian uh, prison officials. And uh, some examples from interviews. Uh, in Varavskoy Zakon, uh, in Sif's Law, Mujiki can fuck uh, Petuhi, you know, this uh, homosexualism. But it's allowed for Mujiki uh, and it's okay in, in Varavskoy Panyati. But we Muslims are clean and never do such disgusting things. We are morally superior and live with Sharia law. And, Varav, uh, and also there is uh, some Muslims also try to make connection between Varavskoy Sif's law and Sharia law. For example, Varavskoy Zakon and Sharia law has many common features. Actually, Wari were inspired by Sharia law when they wrote Varavskoy Zakon. Therefore, Varavskoy Zakon is fair and just. For example, the idea of Afshak comes from Islam, from the idea of Baytul Mal, from uh, the times of Prophet Muhammad. But Varavskoy Zakon uh, differs from Islam in two ways. Card playing and homosexuality, uh, homosexuality uh, is, is not in line with, uh, Muslim, uh, with uh, Sharia, Muslim rules. Islam makes a distinction between haram and halal, while Varavskoy Zakon does not do that. And, I think you, this is not needed, I guess. Uh, and also there is a, uh, uh, ethnicity is also uh, very much present. Uh, and in daily conversations, uh, you know, at any ex expression of ethnic identity and, uh, and showing proud, you know, pride about one's, you know, ethnic belonging is forbidden. Uh, and there is this saying, zemlячstva blячstva. Um, but in daily practices, for example, Uzbeks, they have their own separate karopka box where they, uh, where they collect things for mutual aid. And also if, uh, and there is also discussion about uh, conversation, you know, arguments among Uzbeks, Tajiks, Chechens about history. And uh, Tajiks often talk about uh, uh, Samarkand and Bukhara being uh, authentic Tajik cities and Uzbeks talk about Amir Timur and and Basmacher movement that resisted Soviet uh, Soviet power in Central Asia, uh, and these are you know the history is very much present in daily discussions among and uh, and for example if uh, Uzbeks usually try to protect their member and if one of the Uzbeks you know lose in the card and it's shame if Uzbek cannot pay and then Uzbeks are collecting money and paying the debts. Uh, and you know, in the, uh, so there are different ways where, where Uzbeks try to, uh, you find similar level of solidarity among Tajiks. Tajiks are more tight knit groups than Uzbeks in, in, in Russian prison. Uh, and these are more about uh, expression of uh, ethnicity here. Uh, for example, I am Uzbek, rule uh, to myself. I am proud to Uzbek. In Zona, we Uzbeks created our special Uzki crook within the Opshi crook, and we had our own small karopka. We took care of each other and helped when someone was in need of the cigarettes, tea, or other products. 
these are different examples. And uh, about prison hierarchies, uh, usually there are five, uh, traditionally uh, it's possible to identify five different types of uh, prison hierarchies. It's a bratva, you know, these uh, prisoners who uphold uh, Varavskoy tradition. These are uh, Palazhenits, uh, Barashnik, uh, and uh, Bradyaga, you know, the representatives of the thief's world. Uh, it's a it's a higher uh, it's a highest level of the hierarchy. Then in the second level we have pariadishni mujiki prisoners who are loyal to uh, and follow varavskoy paniati. And also we have third category here uh, hierarchy mujiki rabatiaga. It's are these are the prisoners with a decent status, but they are not interested in varavskoy uh, paniatia, but they usually work in prisons industrial zone and they contribute part of their salary to common uh, abshak. And then we have also uh, Abijani, uh, Pidri, these are the Petuhi, you know, these are um, parts, you know, uh, who, untouchables, uh, who are not part of the hierarchies and then no one can, can shake hands with, with this group. And then we have also uh, and uh, Krasny, you know, the prisoners who collaborate with the pre with prison officials, uh, and also new hierarchy here is Muslims. Uh, so Muslims have their own imam, and they uh, they uh, and their imam usually negotiates the rules of the game with the bratva. Uh, okay, so I think I uh, I did also some village ethnography and. Uh, I also studied uh, reintegration and resocialization processes, but uh, I don't think that I, I, do, I have time to uh, talk about this. So I, I think uh, I can stop here and we can have, I can answer your questions during questions and answers session. Thank you very much for your attention.